Well, hello and welcome to our Building Trust module. I want to start out with an old teacher nugget, which goes like this. Before you tell me what you know, show me that you care. And you know, that's central to all good forms of leadership, is that people really do need to have a sense that you care about them. And the sort of people that make the best leaders come from what we call the light triad. The light triad has these three characteristics. One is in a, a general faith in humanity that you generally speaking uh, believe most humans are good people. Um, another thing is called humanism. That's another part of it. And that's the belief that people across all, all spectrums are deserving of respect and, and appreciation. The last is a thing called Kantianism. And that's the belief that people should be free to uh, carve out their own path and be treated as an ends to their own or means to their own end and, and not be treated as pawns in, in yours or someone else's game. Uh, and the people who score high in the light triad, they tend to uh, be more intellectually curious and they're very secure in their attachment to other people. They tend to demonstrate uh, a high tolerance for other people's perspectives. Uh, they don't lose their mind when they're confronted with ideas that don't agree with them. They uh, have low needs for power over others. They uh, are typically more humble, show more humility. and and have a you know affable and agreeable nature and usually uh, have a higher sense of satisfaction in their lives. The dark triad types and the reason we bring this to you now in the trust building is that uh, as you build up your your leadership skills you're going to bump into some people that simply aren't going to lead like you didn't uh, take the courses you did and uh, the dark triad types tend to gravitate towards uh, senior leadership roles and uh, they can be extremely manipulative and autocratic and um, uh, they oftentimes will fool a hiring or a promotion committee because they come across as the only uh, thing or person that can save the organization from itself. And, uh, the, the characteristics we see in the dark triad, triad are things called uh, psychopathy. Uh, Machiavellianism, which you may recall from the political implications of that, and narcissism. The uh, people who show psychopathy in, in the dark triad, they tend not really to have any sense or any care towards the effect that they have on other people. They, they completely lack empathy. They can be superficially charming, um, but typically they don't have any real friends or have very few of them. And they, they will also, you know, they'll follow their plan without any sense of, of thought for the consequences that, that their plan may be having on others. Uh, the narcissist, uh, these folks, they, they think they're superior to others. And uh, they certainly believe that they're entitled to all of the attention and validation and accolades that are coming their way. Uh, they also can be really vindictive when they're challenged. They, uh, they don't tend to accept responsibility for stuff going sideways or any kind of unwelcome results. And uh, they often have an, an underdeveloped sense of humor and have super thin skin. The Machiavellianism, which as I mentioned, you might know from, from politics. This is someone who believes that their actions uh, are justified by the outcomes that they get. It justifies their behaviors. Uh, they are oftentimes uh, exploitative bullies of the highest order and they view their co-workers and uh, their subordinates as dispensable resources. So, uh, It's really important you get an eye for those folks. They, they tend to show up in the public safety sector and at the top of boardrooms as well. So, 
Um, the employer has an obligation when we talk about uh, building psychologically safe workplaces. The employer has an obligation to screen these people out prior to employing them. And, and if you already have them uh, in your organization, it's in spite of how well they might interview, uh, it's a really costly mistake to promote them and put them in positions of power. So, uh, and this falls, this responsibility falls to the human resources folks, uh, service boards that select chiefs, um, municipal councils at the very even at the highest end. They ha still have an obligation to uh, provide a safe, psychologically safe workplace. So uh, that starts with hiring. I'm going to talk about um, servant leadership, and servant leadership runs through our, our program in terms of the, the value system that we're, we're hoping you're going to uh, subscribe to. And there are 10 traits of servant leadership. I'm going to read them to you so don't, so don't miss any. One is empathy, one is listening, healing, awareness, persuasion, conceptualization, foresight, stewardship, commitment to the growth of, of people, and building out a sense of safe community. So I want you to uh, have a good look at this video uh, on servant leadership, because you know, even if you're a gifted visionary, people simply will not follow you if they don't trust you. In this video, I'm gonna be talking about the 10 principles of servant leadership. Listening, empathy, healing, awareness, persuasion, conceptualization, foresight, stewardship, commitment to the growth of people, and building community. So without further ado, let's do. My name is Jonathan Sandling. If you're new to my channel, welcome. If you're returning to my channel, welcome back. Servant leadership was first proposed by Robert Greenleaf in 1970 in his book entitled The Servant as Leader. And what better way to define servant leadership than to use Greenleaf's very own definition? Servant leadership is a philosophy and set of practices that enrich the lives of individuals, builds better organisations and ultimately creates a more just and caring world. Servant leadership completely rethinks the hierarchical model of leadership and turns it on its head. The traditional hierarchical model of leadership sees the leader at the top of the pyramid in a position of authority and power, whereas servant leadership flips this concept upside down, placing the leader at the bottom of the pyramid in a more supporting, serving position. And as Martin Luther King Jr. said, anybody can be great because everyone can serve. And Greenleaf proposed 10 principles to help people become effective servant leaders. Number one, listening. Communication is a two-way process. Most people are very good at doing the talking bit, but not very good at doing the listening bit. Effective servant leaders are able to actively listen intently and respectfully to others and act in a meaningful way on the information they receive. In my experience, listening is a hugely overlooked skill. You very rarely hear people say, I'm gonna go and work on my listening skills. It doesn't ever happen, but people need to be doing that. Listening is central to servant leadership and central to effective communication. Number two. Empathy. Servant leaders are able to effectively empathise with others. And empathy in leadership can be quite a complex topic, but in the context of servant leadership, it's ultimately about getting to know your team. What are their strengths and weaknesses? What are their likes and dislikes? What motivates them? Servant leadership is all about serving and supporting. So the better you know your team, the better you can serve and support them. Number three, healing. We're not really referring to healing someone physically from an illness, we're talking about healing on a more holistic level. And this can be achieved through coaching, mentoring, and a more relationship-orientated leadership style. People will experience difficulties in work and outside of work, which create stress and anxiety and make their lives difficult to manage. Servant leaders have the ability to identify these issues and provide healing through creating positive work environments, creating value for employees, making people feel valued, and giving people the tools they need to succeed. Number four, awareness. 
Having a good awareness of yourself and others is a quality that is often seen in effective servant leaders. Understanding your own strengths and talents and your own weaknesses and areas for improvement is essential for your own personal growth and development as a leader. And the same goes for understanding the strengths and weaknesses and talents and areas for development of your team, both as a collective team and as individuals within your team. Awareness also extends to the wider culture, environment, atmosphere that's occurring in the workplace or in the area you're leading. Having an awareness of the environment you're functioning in, your own qualities and the qualities of your team can greatly help you to serve, support, manage and lead that team forwards. Number five, persuasion. A key feature of servant leadership is that they gain followers through persuasion and collaboration, as opposed to other styles of leadership which are more associated with power, authority and coercion. In other words, a servant leader would want people to want to follow them, not feel that they have to follow them. This ensures that everyone has a true, sincere belief in the vision and the future ambitions and objectives of what is trying to be achieved. Number six, conceptualization. As a leader, you need to have a clear understanding where you and your organization are heading in the future. Without this clarity, there will be a lack of direction and vision. Servant leaders have the ability to conceptualize the situations they find themselves in. And this is in relation to the future outlook and the current day-to-day -day activities. Number seven, foresight. Foresight is a characteristic that enables servant leaders to understand lessons learned from the past, the realities of the present day, and the likely outcome of any future decisions. Servant leaders are highly reflective of past experiences and can reflect on the outcomes of prior decisions to inform the likely outcomes of future decisions. Foresight doesn't always come naturally to every leader, and very few leaders factor in reflective time within their schedules. So it's important to allocate specific points in the week, the month, or the day where you can sit and reflect on past experiences and future potential decisions. Number eight, stewardship. Stewardship is about a leader guiding an institution or organization throughout their journey. And Robert Greenleaf believed that all leaders of all institutions had a responsibility to ensure their institution worked for the greater good of society. So servant leaders should be ethical, authentic, and focus on more than just profits. In other words, servant leaders should be demonstrating decency in leadership. Number nine, Commitment to the growth of people. Servant leaders believe that people have an intrinsic value beyond simply the work that they do. Servant leaders lead with a deep commitment to both the personal and professional growth of any individual they're dealing with. Ensuring staff welfare and well-being is a major consideration for servant leaders. In fact, this principle can be found in a number of other principles such as awareness and healing, making the commitment to the growth of people a central pillar of servant leadership. Number 10. Building community. Developing and building an effective community is fundamental to servant leadership. Servant leaders aim to create and synthesize social and task-orientated communities. Establishing strong team cohesion is an important component for servant leaders, and this can be achieved through enhanced trust and an ambitious vision. If you're interested in assessing and developing your own servant leadership skills, I've created a free downloadable self-assessment questionnaire. It's a 28 item questionnaire with auto-generated results and there's a link in the description should you wish to complete it. There's also a link in the description below to my website article which explores the concept of servant leadership and the 10 principles in a bit more detail. So go and check that out. If you enjoyed this video, please consider giving the like button a jolly good tap and why not hit that bloody subscribe button. I've created other videos about leadership and some other stuff, so why not check these out? My name's Jonathan Sanding, that's all for now. So to be the trusted and effective leader that we want to be, you really do have to put your, your people first. And this means building a, a, you know, a healthy, uh, growth-encouraging environment uh, for them. And uh, you think of them before you think of your own needs. And uh, if they ever make a mistake, which they absolutely will, you have to take the hit. 
take the hit and fix it later on. We talk oftentimes in communication skills and how to provide feedback about uh, praise in public and scold in private. And that's an old chestnut from the previous century. And for the most part, that, that's completely true. There is one exception though, and this is where you see bullying or harassment happening in the workplace, and it happens right in front of you. You need to act quickly and you need to act loudly the thing we need to do is protect the victim. So you move the harasser, not the victim. Move the harasser to a spot that's safe for the victim, okay? And get your supervisors and HR involved in this thing because you absolutely can't handle this whole deal yourself. And bear in mind too, you're gonna need to have some notes on this and you're gonna wanna start them right after you've done this. So once HR is involved, you need to be realistic in your expectations that once HR is involved, the, the uh, needs of the injured worker will become a very distant second to protecting the liability position of the employer. It's just the way the system's designed. So the reason I mentioned loudly is if you speak loudly and act in a forceful manner, this could be the only social justice that the injured party ever gets. Uh, they may never get the apology that, that they're owed. They have very little say in the outcome, but they will be able to say, you know, for one brief moment in time, somebody stood up for them and said, no more. So do it. It's the right thing to do. I want to talk to you about investing in your people. And uh, one of the things that I found is that it, sometimes it's the hardest part of leading people is, is really being fair to people that you don't actually like or people whose behavior makes it harder for you to like them and, and uh, you do need to try to take the time to understand people well enough to be fair with them. And being fair doesn't mean treating everybody the same. It means being equally fair with everyone. So one of the things you can do over the course of a day, a couple of days even, when, when they're new and new around you, is find out where they grew up. Uh, what country are they from, city, town, even parts of cities can tell you a lot about uh, where people are from. Um, if they grew up in a mining town, their uh, worldview is probably different than if they grew up in a, in a community where the, a government was the primary employer. That's important stuff. Find out about their parents. Find a little bit about what their parents did for a living or do for a living. Uh, we learn our politics at the kitchen table and uh, you can find out a lot about where people are coming from, from, from what they were exposed to as children. And uh, have a look at what that relationship's like now. Are they estranged from their parents? They have regular contact with their parents? Uh, this is important in a couple ways, but one of the most important is if they're estranged from their family, if they get into a position where, where they're struggling, they may not have a support system that's readily available and you may find that it falls more to you as a supervisor than, than you might think it should. But the more you know these things, if you can find out just these few little bits about people, I find that it, it helps you be able to at least be fair to them. So we want to uh, remember too that, that the whole nature of leadership is that leaders have followers. And uh, again, you know, people only follow the people that they believe have their best interest in mind. So. I want you to take a very close look at this video from the lovely Brené Brown. It's about BRAVING. It's an acronym for how to conduct ourselves in building trust. We teach this to our peer support folk, but it's equally important as a leader to conduct yourself in a way that fosters trust. Have a look. What is trust? What do we talk about when we talk about trust? Trust is a big word, right? To hear I trust you or I don't trust you, 
I don't even know what that means. So I wanted to know what is the anatomy of trust? What does that mean? So I started looking in the research and I found a definition from Charles Feltman that I think is the most beautiful definition I've ever heard. And it's simply this, trust is choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. Choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. Feltman says that distrust is what I have shared with you that is important to me is not safe with you. So I thought, that's true. And Feltman really calls for this, let's understand what trust is. So we went back into all the data to find out, can I figure out what trust is? Do I know what trust is from the data? And I think I do know what trust is. And I put together an acronym, BRAVING, B-R-A-V-I-N-G, BRAVING. Because when we trust, we are braving connection with someone. So what are the parts of trust? B, boundaries. I trust you if you are clear about your boundaries and you hold them and you're clear about my boundaries and you respect them. There is no trust without boundaries. R, reliability. I can only trust you if you do what you say you're going to do and not once. Reliability, let me tell you what reliability is in research terms. We're always looking for things that are valid and reliable. Any researchers here or research kind of geeks? There's 10 of us. Um, okay, so we would say a scale that you weigh yourself on is valid if you get on it and it's an accurate weight, 120. Um, okay. So that would be a very valid scale. I would pay a lot of money for that scale. Um, so that is a, that's actually not a valid scale, but we'll pretend for the sake of this. Um, that's a valid scale. A reliable scale is a scale that if I got on it 100 times, it's going to say the same thing every time. So what reliability is, is you do what you say you're going to do over and over and over again. You cannot gain and earn my trust if you're reliable once, because that's not the definition of reliability. In our working lives, reliability means that we have to be very clear on our limitations so we don't take on so much that we come up short and don't deliver on our commitments. In our personal life, it means the same thing. So when we say to someone, oh God, it was so great seeing you, I'm gonna give you a call and we can have lunch. Yes or no? No, it was really great seeing you. Moment of discomfort, goodbye. <laughs> right? But honest, honest. So B, boundaries are reliability. A, huge, accountability. I can only trust you if when you make a mistake, you are willing to own it, apologize for it, and make amends. I can only trust you if when I make a mistake, I am allowed to own it, apologize, and make amends. No accountability, no trust. V, and this one shook me to the core, vault, the vault. What I share with you, you will hold in confidence. What you share with me, I will hold in confidence. 
But you know what we don't understand? And this came up over and over again in the research. We don't understand the other side of the vault. That's only one door on the vault. Here's where we lose trust with people. If a good friend comes up to me and says, oh my God, did you hear about Caroline? They're getting a divorce and it is ugly. I'm pretty sure her partner's cheating. You have just shared something with me that was not yours to share. And now my trust for you, even though you're, you're, you're gossiping and giving me the juice, now my trust for you is completely diminished. Does that make sense? So the vault is not just about the fact that you hold my confidences. It's that in our relationship, I see that you acknowledge confidentiality. Here's the tricky thing about the vault. A lot of times, we share things that are not ours to share as a way to hotwire connection with a friend, right? If you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me. You know, that's <laughs> our, yes or no, like our closeness is built on talking bad about other people. You know what I call that? Common enemy intimacy. What we have is not real. The intimacy we have is built on hating the same people. And that's counterfeit. That's counterfeit trust. That's not real. So the vault means you respect my story, but you respect other people's story. I, integrity. I cannot trust you and be in a trusting relationship with you if you do not act from a place of integrity and encourage me to do the same. So what is integrity? So I came up with this definition because I didn't like any of the ones out there and that's what I do when I don't like them. <laughs> I do, I look in the data and I say, what's integrity? Here's what I think integrity is, three pieces. It's choosing courage over comfort, choosing what's right over what's fun, fast, or easy, and practicing your values, not just professing your values. Right, I mean, that's, that's integrity. In non-judgment, I can fall apart, ask for help, and be in struggle without being judged by you, and you can fall apart and be in struggle and ask for help without being judged by me, which is really hard because we're better at helping than we are asking for help. And we think that we've set up trusting relationships with people who really trust us because we're always there to help them. But let me tell you this, if you can't ask for help and they cannot reciprocate that, that is not a trusting relationship, period. And when we assign value to needing help, when I think less of myself for needing help, whether you're conscious of it or not, when you offer help to someone, you think less of them too. You cannot judge yourself for needing help, but not judge others for needing your help. And somewhere in there, if you're like me, you're getting value from being the helper in a relationship. You think that's your worth. But real trust doesn't exist unless help is reciprocal and non-judgment. The last one is G, generosity. Our relationship is only a trusting relationship if you can assume the most generous thing about my words, intentions, and behaviors, and then check in with me. So if I screw up, say something, forget something, 
you will make a generous assumption and say, yesterday was my mom's one-year anniversary of her death, and it was really tough for me, and I talked to you about it last month, um, and I really was hoping that you would have called. Um, but I know you care about me. I know you think it's a big deal, so I wanted to let you know that I've been thinking about that. As opposed to not returning calls, not returning emails, and waiting for the moment where you can spring, well, you forgot to call on this important, you know, you'll make a generous assumption about me and check it out. Does that make sense? So we've got boundaries, reliability, accountability, the vault, integrity, non-judgment, and generosity. These, this is the anatomy of trust, and it's complex. Why do we need to break it down? For a very simple reason. How many of you in here have ever struggled with trust in a relationship, professional or personal? It should be everybody, statistically, right? <laughs> and so what you end up saying to someone is, I don't trust you. What do you mean you don't trust me? I love you. I'm so dependable. What do you mean you don't trust me? How do we talk about trust if we can't break it down? What understanding trust gives us is words to say, here's my struggle. You're not reliable with me. You say you're going to do something. I count on it. You don't do it. Or maybe the issue is non-judgment. But we can break it down and talk about it and ask for what we need very specifically instead of using this huge word that has tons of weight and value around it. We can say, here's specifically what's not working. So let's talk a little bit about assumptions. And we make assumptions that are really based on our own experience. And, and we need to remember that what matters to us simply may not matter to other people. Uh, but you will always find that there will be some shared values. Uh, and that's always the starting point for negotiations. And that's a, the starting point for problem solving as well. So what do we all want? We want to be safe in our bodies and our minds. We want uh, physical and financial security. Uh, we want to be respected and valued and uh, trusted in our workplace. And we want to have some choice. Choice is really important. And choice comes up uh, heavily in our section on scarf. And the more you follow scarf, the more effective a leader you're going to be. So when, when you find that people aren't committing to you or not getting the commitment you thought you would get uh, in, in your planning or your, your rollout of what you're trying to do, it, a lot of times it comes from a lack of clarity. You may be being unclear or they may find that the way you're communicating your, your expectations is uh, shrouded in mystery and they may not trust you for that. And they, the commitment happens when they don't buy into your plan. And uh, they, you know, it's funny, a, a team won't back a plan that they don't agree with, but if they've been given an opportunity to, to uh, contribute or to weigh in, um, just a chance to be heard, a lot of times they'll support a, a plan that's just sort of half-baked because it becomes their plan, they own part of it. So wherever you can, um, in your style as a leader, as a person, as a parent, as a partner, provide whatever certainty and autonomy you can. People need choices. Give them choices. And while we're talking about trying to be effective, I, I, I need to continue to reiterate that um, we don't diagnose. Peer folk don't diagnose. Supervisors don't diagnose. We always want you to refer to the mental health continuum to look at behaviors. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of conditions that can look a lot like mental health behaviors and there's a lot of, of things in various diagnoses that end up in more than one. 
Um, you know, people who have uh, anxiety can also have depression. They can have lots of overlapping uh, symptomology. So um, things to think about when, when you're wondering if, if you're dealing with a mental health issue is, you know, what, what if it's a blood sugar issue? What if there's interactions between uh, people's medications and the food or drink that they're taking or new meds? What if they're mixing it with some alcohol? Um, those sort of things can really affect people's behavior and, and it'll look an awful lot like you're, you're looking at a mental health crisis. Uh, another thing uh, that can look like uh, issues can be circulatory issues when people's circulation is compromised. Uh, il infections and illnesses can really make people behave strangely and for sure uh, injuries particularly to the head, you'll get some very unusual behavior from that. So recognize that uh, what looks like a mental health issue may not be, that's why we go with observable behaviors. Observable is what we, we mean when we say uh, clinical, that can be observed. Um, you will bump into some anxiety issues and anxiety disorders and there, there's a lot of language around it. You have to be a little bit careful because uh, once we start labeling we're, we're looking for trouble. But um, uh, you, ha you will uh, contact people who have some form of panic disorder. Um, the thing called obsessive compulsive disorder which we're going to talk about a couple of times today. Uh, we have a thing called generalized anxiety disorder or GAD, you'll hear about that. Uh, people have specific phobias. Uh, phobia is a, a term that's used a lot, it, it, it means a, a rational fear but some people's fears are very rational. Uh, then we have a, a thing called social anxiety disorder and then post-traumatic stress disorder has historically been considered in the spectrum of anxiety disorders but now is more recognized as an injury. Uh, I happen to have an operational stress injury from my uh, time as a firefighter. So. The mental health continuum reminds us that we're not qualified to diagnose any specific disorders but you can certainly observe behaviors and, and sort of line them up with uh, that mental health continuum. And there is a copy of that in your student handbook. Um, and I'll give you some examples of, of behaviors that you're going to see that you might, uh, might ring you some bells. Uh, if you have young people in your life and you're, and you're reading the Winnie the Pooh stuff, which stands up remarkably well for stuff that's 100 years old, the characters in Pooh all have diagnosable mental health issues. And, uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh has an eating disorder and he also uh, exhibits addictive behaviors. Uh, Eeyore has uh, a persistent uh, depressive disorder and a thing called dysthemia. So he has also what you would call a generalized anxiety. Uh, Piglet is extremely anxious and he has anxiety disorder. Uh, Rabbit has obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, they say that Owl has dyslexia and narcissism. And Tigger, my old favorite, has uh, ADHD and he ha is inclined to risk taking. And those things are attached to uh, the potential for a bipolar circumstance because he has uh, large mood swings. There's also some people that think that Tigger's exhibiting drug seeking behavior. I don't know. He's always been my favorite. And uh, the other one to think about is Christopher Robin, who exhibits classic schizophrenia. And schizophrenia in his case because he lives in an alternate universe of the hundred acre wood. His reality is those characters and, and what they do together but you know that takeaway from the Winnie the Pooh stuff and the takeaway for you as a leader is 
check out each story. They include Eeyore, who's kind of a drag. They include Eeyore in all of their adventures, and they always work together to solve their challenges. That's the big takeaway, and that's, that's really what we want to do. So now I want to talk for a minute about uh, establishing a relationship with a, a mental health professional. Uh, you should be seeing somebody a couple of times a year, and those people should get to know you. The purpose for, getting to, for, for seeing a mental health professional when you're in the yellow is so that they see what you're normally like. Don't wait till you're a complete mess and go and see them in the red because then they have to unwind a bunch of stuff. Look at that relationship like every other professional relationship that you have, you know, um, and be open about it. You know, don't shy away from your relationship with your mental health professional and look at them like you would your dentist or your lawyer or, you know, anybody else that you would go to for services that you can't provide for yourself. Um, and now we're going to talk about uh, concurrent disorders and substance use. It's important to, to do this simply because uh, the language needs to be correct and you, you want to ensure that you're using the proper language when you're, you're navigating this stuff. So a concurrent disorder is a diagnosable mental health condition that is being self-treated by its owner. Now that doesn't mean that they have a diagnosis, it just means that they are diagnosable and they are trying to work it out themselves. And of course it amplifies the condition because the things that they're doing, they simply don't work. The most common, the most common sorry, uh, of these uh, disorders is uh, alcohol and anxiety. So people high in anxiety will take alcohol to try to, to make them less fearful. We see a lot of alcohol use and depression. And another one that we're seeing more and more of, especially among young people, is cannabis use and schizophrenia. So be aware of the language, it's important. We talk about drug use and, and addiction. And the generally accepted uh, language choices around this is that we call use the use of a product without any adverse circumstances or any, any consequences. So some people can use certain drugs, you know, weekly, monthly. It doesn't, doesn't affect them in any meaningful way. We call it abuse when pe people continue to use a product in spite of negative consequences. So that can be things like uh, legal problems or, you know, getting arrested or health issues, uh, performance problems at work, uh, decaying, declining relationships. Those are, when those things start happening and you're still using, that's an indicator of abuse and that means it's time to act. Um, the dependence term is actually attached to withdrawal symptoms. So many people who are uh, abusing products may also be dependent, um, but it's sometimes the case where people have become dependent on a product where there's no indicator that the, problems, the, the product's causing them any problems. They just use a lot of it. The issue is when they try to stop, they get uh, withdrawal symptoms and it, it is a very uncomfortable time for them. And then the term addiction is what we use to apply to people who are dependent and have that withdrawal when they stop using, but they have uh, cravings for access to the product and uh, changes to their, their brain chemistry. It's really important to have an open mind and open heart about uh, addictions. Uh, it's, it's an illness and uh, we've been very judgy in the past about uh, people with, with addictions and uh, we need to be more open, a little kinder. We want to talk about your role as a mental health advocate as well, and, and we, we really uh, ensure 
that in our presence we don't use or encourage uh, mental health terms that uh, have negative connotations because it adds to stigma. You want to get in front of this. So OCD, that's not the name for hygienic people. Okay, OCD means obsessive thinking that drives compulsive behavior. That's the obsessive and the compulsive part. Another one that's misused a lot is schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is not multiple personality disorder. It's a, it's a separation or schism from reality. So that's part of your wellness role. You know, as a leader, uh, you need to get in front of um, jokes that, that are racist or sexist or mock mental, mental illness. And one of the ways you can kind of get in the way of that is uh, if somebody tells a joke that's simply wrong in front of you, pretend you don't get the joke and ask them to explain it to you. So, wait, I, I don't get that. Explain me that joke. And then they have to deconstruct the joke. And guess what? It's not funny. And they won't do that anymore. But you were able to do that in a way that showed support in the area for people who are struggling. And uh, it's, a, it's a nice uh, nice little technique you should try. It. Um, the, other, the other thing I, I uh, want to talk about is, is humor a little bit. You have to be careful with humor. Um, we talk about people in, in a state of decline having changes in their sense of humor and also times in, in their hygiene. But, you know, it, as a helper, if, if, uh, if you have an underdeveloped sense of humor or your sense of humor is, is kind of mean or wrong or misguided, it can really, really cause a lot of trouble and, and really uh, alienate people and get in the way of connection. The reverse of that's also true. You know, sharing a laugh with somebody can really build a bond. And, and uh, you know, there's people who are just at work just for the laughs, you know. There are lots of them. So uh, be mindful of the, the purpose and the role of humor in what you're doing. Uh, and as long as it's appropriate humor, humor we want to encourage it. Because uh, if people can laugh, it stimulates the vagus nerve. It uh, gets a little reset. People feel better. Laughter builds connection. And uh, it's something that, as a, as a leader, if you're careful about it, you can do more of it. Um, having said that, um, racist and sexist humor cannot stand. You've got to get in the way of that. And, you know, we talk about language choices, and um, it's okay if the people you with uh, use some salty language, if you use some salty language. It can tend to sort of humanize you. If you watch a, a Tony Robbins uh, session, he can get pretty... <laughs> Uh, pretty spicy in his language, but people find him more uh, accessible and approachable because of that, because he talks like they do. So don't overdo it, but bear in mind that people w will connect better if they feel like you're, you, are, you are someone who understands them in, the, in your language choices. Um, I want to uh, make a note now on how it is that we're, we're communicating and uh, how our approach to others can uh, cause anxiety or amplify it and, and creating you know fear circumstances and that can be done environmentally it can be done with clothing uniforms language choices body language all of that stuff we had to we have to always be mindful that we are always communicating someone is always watching and we are always communicating and if you remember that 40 to 50% of the people you're coming in contact with are struggling. 40 to 50%. You add up the anxiety and depression numbers and some other stuff and you're in a 50 percentile. If you, if you bear in mind that 50% of people are struggling, if you go ahead and approach people 
assuming that they have got something going on that they're, that, that's working on them. It helps to remind us to be kinder and more patient. And of the, of the characteristics as a leader that you might be happy to be known for is 10 years after you've retired, people might say, they were certainly kind. Or, man, she was really patient with me when I needed her help. So, hope you like this piece. That's the end of this uh, module, and we we'll look forward to seeing you.